Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. I am digging the snazzy new intro music from our new friends in Boston, the Kendall Square Orchestra. Steve Simone, as you know, last night we kicked off BioCentury's 28th Annual Back to School Edition which this year we are delivering as a week-long multimedia event with essays and data charts produced daily and complemented with 19 exclusive audio interviews with select industry leaders such as Scott Gottlieb, Kate Bingham, and more. Simone, what will Back to School address this year? There's really only one topic that you can address, and that is how can the industry take all of this energy and commitment that it's taken to expediting countermeasures for COVID-19 and convert that into some kind of standard practice, basically some way, what are the key take-homes for reducing the amount of time and the amount of money it takes to bring a therapy to market? But at the same time, there are other lessons from this year there are two really big messages that industry and in fact the whole ecosystem must learn. One is that we've really had laid bare the racial disparities in healthcare and that cannot go on. And the other is that everybody was completely asleep at the wheel when it came to pandemic preparedness that can never, ever happen again. I would actually add a, a corollary to the one that you mentioned about racial disparities, which is about global inequities in access to medicines. One, one of the things that, that's going to happen, several people that we spoke with on the podcast, including Voss, the CEO of Novartis mentioned, is that it's inevitable that people living in large parts of the world, in Africa, in South America, Central America, much of Asia, are not gonna get access to vaccines and to therapies for COVID-19 probably for a year or more after people in more affluent countries get access. And that's something that I think is unacceptable. It's unacceptable both for, from a human point of view, but also for, from a public health point of view. If people in other parts of the world aren't protected and they're at risk, then all of us are gonna be at risk. Not disagreeing with that at all, but I, I wanna go, Jeff, to the four stories that we're gonna be rolling out this week. And I'm gonna come back to Steve's point in a minute, because the first one which publishes today, Tuesday, makes the point that biopharmas must address the reality of racial disparities in health outcomes that have been exposed by COVID-19. Those realities absolutely extend to developing countries and as Steve has pointed out, their access to vaccines. But they do not stop there. They are at every biopharma's door, even in the West. And my message, therefore, is that it's not okay for small companies to say, well, I'm not working on something that's for malaria and that's the third world or whatever. They really need to be looking at the racial disparities on their own doorstep, which have shown us that Blacks, African-Americans have a much higher liability for COVID-19, but the truth is the data's been out there for a long while that there are several other diseases where racial and ethnic minorities are overrepresented 
and they are not being fed proportionately into or represented proportionately in clinical trials or in drug development. That is not only true in the US, it is true also in the UK. And in fact, it's true in other countries, but many countries don't actually collect the data. What, what are some of those diseases? There are diabetes, there are chronic heart disease, there are many kinds of cancer. We actually have some charts, Jeff, uh, coming out in the material today that actually um, show that graphically. Excellent. So each day we're going to be coming out with a story. As I said, Tuesdays will focus on racial disparities. On Wednesday, we are going to publish two stories, in fact, that talk more about the nuts and bolts of what's been done extraordinarily in the pandemic that needs to carry on afterwards. And one of those is what I'm going to call the third rail of data sharing that companies have started to show during the pandemic. And we will make the case for where and how they should continue to do that afterwards. Another one is coming out tomorrow is a big focus on master protocols, adaptive platform trials, and the recovery trial in the UK as the poster child in COVID-19. I think I would say, Steve, would you say iSpy is probably the poster child prior to the pandemic for a master protocol platform trial, but they've really not been used very much. I agree. iSpy is really, it's been a model not only for master protocols, but for adaptive trials. And I think that's a key concept. The story that you mentioned is one really about what are the lessons from the COVID-19 experience that industry and even more governments and societies at large have to learn to become better prepared for the next pandemic? Because everyone who I spoke with about this said it's inevitable that there will be more pandemics and it's quite possible that future pandemics would be far worse than COVID-19. There are things that have been known for years, for decades, that have to be done or could be done um, to better prepare us. They haven't been done and now they need to be done. There's no excuse not to do them. Basically, there's a need to have a continuing R&D enterprise focused on countermeasures for known and unknown emerging infectious diseases. There's a need to create manufacturing surge capacity. There's a need to incentivize the development of new kinds of diagnostics. So diagnostics can be ubiquitous and also to have surge capacity for diagnostics and finally for surveillance capabilities so that uh, these things uh, don't uh, sneak up on us. So you've spoken to collectively 19 key opinion leaders in industry, everyone from Mark McClellan, Peggy Hamburg, and Scott Gottlieb, three uh, obviously former FDA commissioners, I've spoken to Bill Anderson from Roche, Michelle McMurray-Heath from Bio. What podcasts would you like to highlight for us? Well, obviously, they're all worth listening to. They're all great. I think that one of the things that really surprised me was the concordance on a lot of points that people had. And some of the concordance was surprising. The CEOs of Novartis and Roche Pharma both attributed their company's resilience in the face of COVID-19 to the empowerment of their employees. And I didn't really expect that. Novartis has what they call an unbossed culture. And Roche, Bill Anderson said that they've gone as far as uh, eliminating budgets and basically tell people to do the right thing and justify it afterwards. And they both said that this empowerment of their employees has accelerated in um, COVID-19 and they attributed it to their success in keeping their operations running and in being able to address COVID-19. So a couple of things. One is, I think probably every single podcast people talked about 
the way people have come together and the collaborations and, you know, that kind of energy. One thing that I thought was really interesting, one of my first podcast interviews that I did was with Kate Bingham, who's the chair of the UK Vaccine Task Force. And she outlined to me why she thought the UK's recovery trial was so successful and, and what it did so well. And one of the last interviews that Steve and I did together was with Mark McClellan, who um, is the director of Duke Margolis and also a former FDA commissioner. And he outlined almost exactly the same points that Kate made. And I swear they didn't talk between them, I'm sure, between, before that. One interesting podcast for me was to talk to Martin Landry, one of the leaders of that master protocol trial. And what they talk about is the fact that they made the endpoints really simple. And because basically, do you live or do you die? It was a 28 mortality endpoint. They reduced the burden on hospitals. And the reason this is so important is that it meant that the, the trial could be conducted in about 175, what we would call America, community hospitals all through the UK, who normally can't do clinical trials because they make them so complicated, which is something we do in the US. So I think this is really important, not only for recovery, but also as a lesson for how to bring more hospitals and therefore more patients into the clinical trials enterprise, let's call it. And we talk about this idea of a network of clinical trials. So I think that hearing just the two of them articulate basically the same points uh, completely differently, and then talk to Martin Landry, who reinforced all of that and had some nice sort of spicy English angles on it all. That was really quite interesting. It was interesting on the concordance team, Scott Gottlieb, George Yankopoulos uh, from Regeneron, Voss from Novartis, they all presented the same kind of ideas around the importance of investing in surge capacity for manufacturing. And they all had the same solution for it. They basically said, instead of governments building standalone manufacturing facilities and having them ready for emergencies, that it's going to be a lot more effective to pay companies to create extra capacity and have the government be able to put a call on it in case of emergencies. It's a kind of a, a simple and elegant answer. And I think it was interesting to me that everyone's thinking along the same lines. Steve, can you think of any, I'm trying to think myself, do you think there are any places where there was real discordance, where people disagreed with each other, if you were to put one against the other? I'm hard pushed to think of one. No, I think that there was a difference in people's views about how much of what's happened during COVID-19 can and should continue. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Things should work. Like Josh Billinker from the LOXO unit of Eli Lilly basically said after COVID-19 is over, things are going to revert back pretty much the way they were. Other people said, no, this is an inflection point. Things are never going to be the same again. And I would also say that on infectious diseases, I had some people say, yeah, I think actually we're going to see a lot more investment in infectious disease and interest. And other people go, like you just said, nah, it's just going to go back to what it was. We'll forget this soon. And the same thing about AMR. There were some people who said, oh yeah, this is going to be a wake-up call and governments and societies are going to make the necessary investments and policy changes so that we can avoid antibiotic resistance going forward. And other people said, no, probably people are just going to move on and screw it up just like they have been screwing it up. You also spoke to two very prominent investors from opposite sides of the globe. From Europe, you spoke to Francesco Di Robertis of Medici. And from China, you spoke to Nisa Liang from Qi Ming. 
what did they have to say? Each of them actually gave a little bit of the perspective of, of where they are regionally. So what was interesting about Nisa's, what I took away from that, was this picture of a really much more developed biopharma ecosystem in China. She had talked about her career starting after the 2003 SARS outbreak, where there really wasn't this kind of ecosystem there. And it's evident from what went on in China after this broke out, the way companies got together. She's really looking at diagnostics and AI and the ability of AI through some of her companies to advance technologies. And really, you just got the sense from interview of this budding ecosystem in China, I, I think budding is probably the wrong word. Maturing is actually the correct word. I think it's been budding for a while. I think I'm going to go with maturing for a little bit now for that ecosystem. And with Francesco in Europe, we talked a little bit about preclinical assays and harmonization. He really actually emphasized what this means in terms of putting science on the front pages and how science is now the cool and interesting thing to do and to be. I asked him whether he thought that should continue and that we should continue to have scientists out there in the public really explaining their case. And he said, no, don't do that. Scientists hate that. They just want to go back to their bench and bury their head in their work and do all that. He basically said it's a good thing that we've got so much science out there, but no, don't ask scientists to do this as a day job. Steve, you had mentioned your conversation uh, with Vast as yielding a surprising comment about the unbossed culture. Were there any other unexpected things that you heard? Yeah, one of the things that he said that I thought was really interesting is um, that it's too early to declare success against COVID-19, and it's too early to say that the shortcuts that were taken are going to work. He cautioned, he said, look, companies haven't done the dose-ranging studies that they usually do They've skipped some of the preclinical testing that they usually do. They've uh, shortened a, a lot of the timelines. And he said, look, we're going to have to wait till we get the phase three results to know whether those right. were actually smart decisions. It may be that some of the things they're going to regret that they took some of those shortcuts. You know, there are good reasons why all of those things are, are done. It may be possible to speed them up. But he said, don't just assume that um, everything's going to be fantastic and that you can just um, skip all these things with no consequences. I think I wouldn't say regret, but rather not embed for the long term, because he said we have to do it now. But how much of these we adopt going on? But I do want to just end on one thing that I thought was very interesting that he said, which is that. He said, we've really learned that the um, pre-competitive space is much larger than we ever realized. And so I think on the one hand, on the clinical trials, we don't know in the future how many corners you can cut, but it does seem to be some convergence around the idea that there's more mining to be had in pre-competitive sharing than there has been until now. I don't know if he's optimistic. I'm optimistic. Well, and just one last point, which is, <laughs> I thought uh, Rod McKenzie from Pfizer, he made a very good point along these lines. He said, look, patients who have a whole variety of diseases and conditions are just as desperate as people yeah. who are faced with COVID-19 and companies and regulators can't go back to business as usual. He said, people are going to look at um, drug development timelines and they're going to see how fast things were done for COVID-19 and people have any one of a myriad of other diseases and conditions are not going to accept business as usual anymore. And, and he gave some specific things that have been done in COVID-19 
that he thinks need to persist in order to get cures and therapies to, to patients with other diseases just as quickly as is happening with COVID-19. I look forward to uh, having that one hit my inbox, hopefully shortly. That's all we have time for this week. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. All of our back-to-school content, including the audio interviews that you just heard about, can be found at biocentury.com. That's also where you'll find our COVID-19 Resource Center, where we're tracking nearly 800 therapeutics and vaccines.